Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Everybody. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survive the experience. And what an experience we have today. After last episode, taking a look at the famous introduction of the Brood into the X-Men, as well as the incorporation of Deathbird in Uncanny X-Men 154 through 157 by Claremont and Cockrum, today we get the opportunity to examine three, albeit unusual, issues of Uncanny X-Men. Each one by Claremont and a different visual storyteller. We have 158, which focuses on Ms. Marvel and Rogue by Claremont and Cockrum. 159, which focuses on Storm and Dracula by Claremont and Sienkiewicz. A Nico all-time favorite, thank you very much. As well as 160 by Claremont and Brent Anderson, focusing on Ileana, kind of, almost, sort of. Well, she's in it, and some shit happens to her. But I wouldn't say that really it's Ileana's issue. But either way, it's nice to be back on Earth after hanging out in space so much, even though this circumstance seem a little strange absolutely it's probably the weirdest three sets of issues and i wouldn't say it's because 158 is a weird issue story-wise it's just weird to have all three of these come back one after one another because these are singleton issues that remove themselves from one another you could have ordered these in any way and it all still makes sense which is kind of interesting but i digress i think these issues were fun and had some neat ideas of what they were trying to go for especially 158 i agree but 158 does bring me to an interesting point I want to illustrate. After the last few issues of the space race, I was really excited to see Rogue on the cover, but I do think it kind of brings a problem into focus for me. Claremont was writing Ms. Marvel, starting with a script on issue 3 and then taking over full writing duties on issue 4 until its cancellation with issue 23. The list of concepts he'd intended for Ms. Marvel or begun there is ridiculous. The concept of Dark Phoenix, the Hellfire Club, Mystique, Rogue, Deathbird, these were all ideas for another title, like Ms. Marvel, that found their way into the Uncanny X-Men. After an arc in space, first is one of Ms. Marvel's old villains after Carol appeared in that arc. It feels dramatic and focused to turn to Rogue at this point. The issue even begins with Carol training, much like Scott and Storm did last issue, but this time with the Starjammers. Yeah, and instead of leaving Earth after they've done their duty, the Starjammers are just kind of hanging out, kind of just being bros with the X-Men on their super secret, not so secret island that wasn't built for them, but they just kind of were like, we're gonna take this. But it's pretty interesting because... I think this is the first introduction to Rogue in an X-Men comic, which is a pretty shocking statement to say if you're more of a recent fan. I agree. Rogue makes her first appearance in Avengers Annual number 10, and this is her first appearance in the Uncanny X-Men. Now, Avengers Annual 10 came out roughly around Uncanny X-Men 149, so this is nine issues later and we're finally seeing Rogue pop back up. Rogue will make a number of appearances in titles like Dazzler and the Uncanny X-Men before ultimately finding herself a full-on good guy hanging out with the X team but here we get a pretty gritty version of Rogue. I like it. I like a lot of what comes together but really at the end
end of the day, this feels like a Ms. Marvel issue. And I enjoy that. But outside of furthering the Xavier catatonic state storyline, I don't think too much went on here. Went on here. Jonah, what do you think about this Xavier catatonic stuff? It's interesting, kind of. We're not really too sure what caused it. What happened was in the previous episode, Charles tried to establish a psychic link to Kitty and Kurt, who are on a different spaceship after they saved Lalandra, to tell them what happened that Lalandra's alive and to stop them from destroying the Earth if that's what's happening. But he has this weird psychic nightmare that for some reason he decides to probe into it and he goes into this catatonic state and we're not really told where this comes from, what's going on with him. So it's all just weird that he's kind of just in this state and not even Oracle, who's a pretty powerful psychic in her own right, can save him. It's almost like a disease for specifically telepaths. And it sets the stage to keep Xavier off the playing field. One of the more unique things about this story is it manages to still be about Xavier without really using him too much, and there's a number of references made to him. Ultimately, it turns out that the United States government, from its time working with Xavier, has extensive files on mutants that the X-Men need to wipe out. So, Kitty suggests creating some sort of 80s version of a computer virus, and I say it that way because, you know, 80s science, and they need the Starjammers help, but then they have to, like, break into the Pentagon to do it, and we get a quick Pentagon on history lesson thanks claremont and that's where rogue is just hanging out at a water fountain no i I do want to say this before we delve into that a little bit more we're actually subject to senator robert kelly talking about his hate for mutant kind and that they need to be destroyed and it's kind of funny because my thoughts were the exact same that the interviewer were saying as questions to robert kelly that hey these mutants kind of saved you and you would have died if they didn't help you why are you kind of being a dick about it they seem to want to just help and robert's just kind of like no, they need to be destroyed. Sometimes you just need to use violence. That's why they need to send this virus into the US government database to destroy all information that they have on the mutants. But I say this is interesting because the last time that we saw Mystique was her trying to assassinate Robert Kelly and now he's on TV and she's also just in the Pentagon. Yeah, using her real name Raven Darkholm, which is like super stupid. But there's also this really weird scene where Alex and Lorna are cooking. I don't know why Claremont is like, quick show people cooking all the time. So Scott's like, hey, and Alex is like, oh, hey, buddy, what's up? And Scott's like, dead dad. It's real weird. It's real weird. Alex takes it a lot better than Scott does. Yeah, Alex, I have a feeling that Alex takes it a lot better than Scott does in general. Well, when you are married, basically, and fucking the Claremazon Polaris, you kind of have to be able to take it well. Now, one of the things about this issue that I'm not exactly thrilled about is the way Storm ultimately defeats Rogue is she just sort of blows her away. Like, seriously. She just kind of blows her away. Anti-Raven, Anti-Raven, no! (laughs) Uncle Destiny, it's really intense. Yeah, she's just kind of blown away by a whirlwind, and that's that's just kind of about it, what happens. I will say this, I think it's actually pretty interesting, because a lot of Wolverine's powers that comes from his adamantium claws, and when Rogue absorbed some of his power, I was like, well, she can't just grow adamantium claws, it's not, that's not, that can't happen. But no, they actually, she actually uses his feral sensing and tracking, which is pretty interesting, because I wasn't expecting that use. So where you're at in canon, maybe Rogue can't, but ultimately, Rogue's powers do advance to a point where she does take on the physical character 
characteristics of the mutants she absorbs. Fascinating. And then over time, the claws will like slowly grow back down into her hands and stuff. Ew. Ew. It's actually real painful and stuff. Yeah. Ew, rogue. Ew, rogue. And I think one of the things that for me really did make this a goddamn Carol Danvers issue was that at the end, she's like, I'm here to help the X-Men. Beep, beep. Oh, oops. I put in the wrong pin number. Those are my files. Delete. Yeah. It's a pretty great issue because Carol Danvers comes off as this very strong woman who, even though she doesn't remember her past life, she's willing to just kind of put that behind her and start anew and form a new identity. But my problem is this is not a Carol book. This isn't Carol's title. This isn't Carol and the X-Men. This is just the X-Men. And to highlight what bothers me about it is it's that it doesn't feel like Carol is part of the book. It feels like she gets her own subplots, her own B stories outside of the main narrative of the X-Men. And I'm waiting for some of my X-Men to get any page time some issues so splitting it off like this it does feel a little bit more than her fair share as much as i love carol and i'm a huge carol fanboy this is just maybe not the smoothest use of her dynamic character not yet at least Claremont loves his motifs and he tends to work in these modes where like he gets an idea and then he brings it up every now and then and it seems like especially following the Dark Phoenix saga magic became something much more important in this title and a very sudden pivot to Dracula (laughs) no different now the X-Men have a storied history with Dracula whether it's this story or the any subsequent stories that may grow from it or the X-Men vs. Vampires crossover event that they tried under Vic Victor Gishler's X-Men title that turned Jubilee into a vampire. Woof. It is a... I mean, you love it or hate it. Jonah, this was your first time seeing the X-Men fuck around with Dracula. What were your thoughts? I actually think this issue has a lot of good things going for it. I think some of the art in this book is absolutely stunning. And the way that they draw Storm in her, you know, for lack of a better phrase, lady in white, you know, pale ghost forms, incorporal forms of just very ghastly and like flowing about. It's pretty amazing and it's pretty stunning. I think my overall problem with the story is just pacing and resolution. I agree. I think it's an important issue. And like I mentioned, Bill Sienkiewicz is my jam. But there are some things that don't necessarily work for me. I do love that in this universe, Dracula is affected by objects of personal religious significance. Thus, when Kitty is holding a cross as a young Jewish woman, it does nothing. But her Star of David does burn Dracula. That works for me. That absolutely also works for me. Things that don't work for me. I am not sure who gave Chris Claremont the permission to... To put Kitty Pride in an ever-rotating Tori Spelling's hair colors on 90210 seasons 1 through 6 sort of action figure dream Barbie costume collection. But she got to use the image transducer for several issues before ultimately deciding she was going to save the world. Part 1 in a gimp suit. Part 2 is Dark Phoenix. Part 3 is Robin Hood. And here they let her dress as Indiana Jones for no reason. Because they let her dress herself. Well, that's a thing they do. But I actually do like this issue a lot. I think anytime you juxtapose Storm with the mystical and you conjure up ideas of Storm's darkness, it's a lot of fun, actually. She's a really great character to use those things and juxtapose those ideas through. I also love that it kicks back a little bit to the fact that they don't really have a home right now. So they go to visit Misty Knight and instead they find her new super fabulous roommate, Harmony Young. Who I love. I appreciate a 
beautiful black model kind of just living with the amazing tough black PI. Yeah, that's what Misty is. I get it. And I kind of also really appreciate that she's kind of like, no, you guys are cool. You can hang, especially if you're all cute. To which Kitty gets jealous that Colossus was called cute, to which she says, Colossus isn't really that cute. Yeah, Kitty, nobody nobody knows what you're doing there. You're not really obvious. You're not fooling anybody, Kitty. And this is going to be a really dumb little side note, and it's so stupid, right? I know. But I actually really enjoyed that Claremont found the room to have the doctor that takes a look at Storm when she's passed out of the knife attack in the park that they have found her, and she's like, oh no, she might not make it. One of the things is the doctor knows what she's talking about and this woman doctor is very smart and she's very capable and she releases storm against her own wishes storm wants to leave but i thought that this was a compassionate intelligent doctor and it's just sort of an example of where claremont does at least attempt to create strong dynamic women anywhere he can i think it just adds to the realism and being able to put yourself in that situation of seeing like oh this feels like a real person this this doctor no matter what feels like a real person and a real character even even though she's only there for a few pages and a few panels. One of the things that really threw me off, though, about this issue is I think Claremont gave Dracula every single Draculorian ability. He can turn into smoke and bats and big bats and wolves, and he's super strong, and I think he's got magic, and he's evidently really charming and dressed vaguely like Bella Lugosi, and there's just something about Claremont's kind of like, let me use every trope that occasionally does kind of get me down. I will say maybe it's a little too on the nose for a vampire, especially Kitty rambling off vampire facts of like, well, Storm actually can't be a vampire because you have to be dead for three days and all these different things that, well, it's cool and it's great that Kitty's, you know, loves horror films and has all this great horror knowledge, a little too on the nose to, I guess, make it feel like this is a, I guess, make it feel like a superhero comic, you know, Dracula is a very well iconic character in literature, but I would have loved maybe a different interpretation of Dracula as opposed to an on-the-nose vampire. At this time, Marvel had a very successful horror line, so it's very possible that this is even the same Dracula from Tomb of Dracula, and that's what they're trying to go for. But I agree, there's a ton of room in the Marvel Universe for multiple iterations of multiple characters. There's a number of characters that are all supposedly Merlin that all can't be the same person, so I don't see why they couldn't have tried something a little bit braver here. I do want to point out that I want that scarf. The one with the nice golden embroidered D. Yeah, it just seems silly and I kind of want it. Though, I do want to say that the legacy on this issue is really intense. As a matter of fact, Bloodstorm, a vampire version of Storm, turns up in an alternate universe title that will come down the line called Mutant X. Without getting further into details, Bloodstorm is pretty cool. And I like that this arc, this sort of Dracula motif that Claremont put in Storm, Storm's universe, which we will see come up again, has some significance to other fans as well, not just myself. Jonah, on the whole, what did you think of the X-Men's first interaction with the Fanged One? Coming to do and talk about this right now, I realize I don't hate this issue as much as I originally thought it was. I guess it's just the ending that sullied it for me. But I really do actually appreciate Storm having to fight with herself of desires that were put into her of being a vampire and killing and bloodlust versus her pact and self-imposed rules of not harming the living and not killing anybody when she doesn't need to. You know, if you really pay attention to how Storm fights, she never causes anybody to die. She'll 
she'll often just blow them away and daze them with some winds or she'll freeze them in a way that they can always be thought out afterwards. Nobody ever fully gets hurt that they're unrecoverable from Storm. So I really liked that inner fighting that Storm had to go through, especially when she's trying to fight control of Dracula. But as I've said, the way that Storm breaks control the first time at least and the second time and I would assume subsequent times, but I don't know, is that she kind of just breaks it out of sheer willpower because she loves Kitty and Kitty's like, if you love me, you can fight this and if you you can't just kill me, it's fine. Little nihilistic there, Kitty there. Hold, hold your horses. But that is just a weird and cliche and just bad day sex mocking of that. It, it could have been better. So it's taken some time to get here, especially because it's hard to not mention that this issue will someday happen when you first discuss her first appearance in Giant Size X-Men number one. But we have arrived at Uncanny X-Men 160, the issue which sees Ileana go from Lethal Snowflake to, you know, Scary Murder Sorceress Demon Lady. And it's such a long road to get here, but I feel like once you're here, it begins to move very quickly. Jonah, this issue is a total change from how we've seen the X-Men handle just about any situation. This is the first time they're on the lookout for one of their own missing children in another dimension. How did you feel about this issue? This isn't the X-Men's first rodeo when it comes to dark arts and mysticism and being placed in a location filled with it and a scary demon person. I'm looking at you, Margali. But I think, I don't actually think this is a bad issue. I think it's weird and I think it's a little out there, but that's what I kind of appreciate about it is it's a direction I wasn't expecting from the X-Men of in a weird subsection of the universe where time and space don't make sense and they have to face really weird things happening to them. And you know, I like that you said the X-Men have to face it because this issue is considered by many to be a pivotal issue for Ileana. But outside of that first few pages where she's lured out of the X-Mansion, which by the way, one of the creepiest things ever, the issue kind of focuses more on the adult X-Men being confronted by these horrors. I feel it reads as though for the most part, Ileana has no clue what's really happening to her throughout this issue. Now, we'll spend a lot of time in this era of Ileana's life throughout the course of New Mutants, particularly during her four-issue miniseries, which investigates this period of time. But for this moment, and at this point, it feels very much like this is more Kitty's story than it is Ileana's. And I could even argue this is very much more a Storm issue than anything. Not that I wouldn't agree that this is an Ileana issue, but I think this is the prologue to Ileana's story and what her her arcs will entail. I don't think this is the start just yet. I think this is more of, we're going to get there. Keep this in the back of your mind for right now. We're going to go into that story. But this is more about Kitty, you know, confronted with a lot of scary things of seeing her own skeleton being ripped out of her body and just waving to her because, you know, that's fine. I think it's actually pretty interesting because the X-Men are faced with what they assume are future versions of themselves because this entire place is all wonky when it comes to time. But the only two living adult X-Men that we see are Kurt and Storm. Kurt goes kind of mad and turns evil after seeing all of his X-Men friends and family die and being tortured and becomes a servant of Belasco. And Storm actually herself becomes kind of a servant of Belasco but turns on him because when she learns the dark arts, she doesn't become evil and she actually plans on using them to destroy him or set them free. But Colossus' adult form is killed and Logan was already a skeleton. You know, I love that you brought up the fact that Storm learns the dark arts and isn't corrupted by 
by them, Storm as the Weather Witch becomes more than just a nickname. We really see a massive shift from Storm, just as this vaguely ethereal character, to a character who is outright stated to have great magical potential, but instead explores her mutant side. I find the idea that Storm is one of the last survivors in this hellscape in which the X-Men have been tortured and killed pretty logical. We've spent a lot of time these last few issues hyping up Storm, being reminded how powerful she is, and you know, not for nothing, but last issue did show us that Storm has the ability to resist magical charms when she broke free of Dracula. So we didn't need, even need to see her break free of Belasco. Claremont did a really good job seeding that she'd be able to with a story lasting issue, making Storm's willpower something we just accept as a part of the character, especially as it relates to magic interference. I completely agree. And I know I just talked about him, but I would have loved to have seen a sorcerer, Kurt. I would have to imagine Kurt has some magical sorcerer abilities considering who his adoptive mother is. I know Amanda has pretty great power herself. So to me, I could also have seen this taking the turn where Kurt was the one to save them. And this is me projecting because I want Kurt to save the day all the time and to be the best X-Men that there ever is, like how I see him in my own eyes. But I think that could have been an interesting way to see how Kurt would have dealt with this. I like that you brought up that you would think that in part because of Kurt's lineage, he might have some magical prowess. We come to find out that Kurt is very closely tied to magic down the line. So there is a lot of room for that interpretation and I would love to see that myself as well. One of the things that is so necessary to the X-Men's canon that we get from this miniseries is that locket. The Bloodstones are a huge part of Ileana's story going forward, kind of forever and ever. It's almost weird that we don't see the soul sword here, but that instead we get the bloodstones. On the whole, I think this sets up a really dark moment for the X-Men. It's revolutionary that the X-Men are able to transform so much in such a small space. Claremont doesn't say I'm going to move this character forward a little bit. She doesn't just age. She ages, becomes a sorceress, gains a dark personality that mirrors no one on the X-Men, learns eldritch ancient arts that corrupt her soul. This is a character who is going to go through things that no one else in the X-Men has gone through, outside of perhaps Jean, but it's in a totally different way. This wasn't about, well, maybe I'll do this. This was a calculated move to create something that the X-Men didn't have, and that's the power of Claremont's storytelling. And I'm going to say this, I think what the X-Men currently are missing on their team is a magic user, is someone connected to mysticism and dark arts and all that great, you know, magic that they're putting into this universe because they don't have a lot the closest that they had for a little while was Jean, but Jean's been dead for a while and currently Charles is in a catatonic state. So I think having this character of Ileana go through this and become that magic anchor that the X-Men are currently missing, I think is pretty great. And I completely agree with you, Nico. What I've been talking about these past few main uncanny episodes and to Nico and to everyone who will listen to me talk about the X-Men is that Ileana kind of didn't have a place for a little while because they saved her from Arcade and then they never brought her back to Russia and they just kind of had her around and it's kind of weird having pretty much an ex-baby who doesn't have powers that they've discussed or talked about and she was just kind of there just being little snowflake and I really think that if they're going to choose a character instead of introducing somebody new having it be Ileana was a very smart idea. And Ileana gives them something that they desperately needed which was more than one child. It's really tough for Kitty Pride to come off like a 13 year old without coming off like a baby when she has no other 13 year olds to be around. So this was a really good move on Claremont's part to fill out the team. I will say this, that means Kitty probably won't be the only ex-student currently. That is correct. So before we even get to the new mutants, 
there will be more than one kid running around the Xavier Institute. Well, I can't wait. Hello, I'm gay geek psychiatrist Dr. Matt Connor, and welcome back to Mary Mutant Mental Health, a segment where we talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the X-Men comics Nico and the team are reading on X is for Podcast. And I love Dracula stuff, so let's talk about horror today. This one time, I was dating a very nice guy, and at one point he was nervous, and I said to him, oh, you're feeling anxious right now. I get that. And weeks later, he's referencing this and telling a friend, and then he diagnosed me with anxiety. And that makes me think a lot of people might not have as much experience talking about what normal anxiety is without it being turned into some dread disease or something that you have to feel embarrassed about. So I thought Dracula is a good way to bring some of this into a healthy discussion. Anxiety is, in and of itself, neither good nor bad. It's uncomfortable, yes, it's supposed to be. But we as humans are supposed to feel anxious when we need to. In proper proportion, anxiety serves a protective purpose that our body needs. If I'm walking back to my hotel at night in a city I've never been, it's important that I look around me to make sure that I'm going the right way and that I'm not being followed. Getting mugged would make for a very bad trip, and a little anxiety helps me do what I need to do to stay safe. If I'm typing and a friend comes up behind me, I'm totally going to jump and I'm going to feel this, like, flush. But in a minute or two, I'm going to calm down and I'm probably going to laugh about it. That's just how I handle that. It could have been something bad, but it wasn't. And in the Stone Age, if a tiger is headed your way, you need more than just a little awareness. You need to be able to immediately shift all of your resources to escape mode. And that means things like your stomach shutting off. You don't need to digest anything if you're going to be digested yourself. Your leg muscles get a lot more blood. Your brain might not get as much. You'll breathe really, really fast to get oxygen to the parts of you that are trying to get the hell away from that tiger. The other kind of physical things that we see with adrenaline. And all of that, that scanning around for a mugger, that full body change in panic, that's healthy. That's an important part of the function. An anxiety disorder, disorder, it comes in when you're getting anxious in situations that most of us know are safe. Or if the intensity of the anxiety that you're experiencing is paralyzing. Or if the anxiety doesn't go back down once you've figured out that it's actually safe out there. For example, if I have to go to a work conference in a city that I don't know, and I choose not to go because I'm scared I'm going to have to walk around at night and I might get mugged, that's anxiety getting in the way of how I do my job. Or if I'm typing and a friend comes up behind me and I jump, but I'm still twitchy about it an hour later, that affects my productivity. It's distracting. Or, if I'm going to go on a date with a new person, and I start to feel kind of nervous, that's normal, that's healthy, but then my brain goes into spirals like, ugh, he is going to hate me, I'm so awful, what if he's secretly a criminal, what if this is the worst night of my life? My brain is going past where most people recognize a normal, healthy date anxiety, and I might shut down and cancel, and then I might die alone, and that would be really sad. All of these are examples of it being more of a disorder than an actual healthy function. And how does that relate to a good Dracula story? We, as a culture, we love horror. As human beings, we love horror. We've told ghost stories as long as we've had the language to do so. And Dracula is a good example of a horror story. When we're in it, we get to have some of that normal, healthy anxiety ramping up. If I were genuinely in Dracula's castle, it would be a healthy response to get tense and vigilant and be ready to run. But we know on some level that we're safe 
We know that we're just reading. We know that it's not real. So we go into a situation more prepared, and we can enjoy the positive aspects of that anxiety, the thrill of the racing heart, the swell of adventure as Jonathan Harker, or in this case, Storm and Kitty, escape from the monster. And afterwards, we release. Our muscles let go. Our heart rate slows back down to normal, and that feels pleasant. We might even get a good laugh once that part is over. There are plenty of other cultural reasons that we like horror, like the symbolic transmission of values, the education of a group, uh, etc. From a medical standpoint, we like horror because it feels so good to not feel anxious anymore, and this is a nice way to set that off. You won't find anything scary on my Instagram, but you can check it, Matthew James Connor, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R. And the other day I did get sunscreen in my eye and it totally burned and I totally posted about that, so you could follow me there to see that. That's kind of scary. I'll talk to you next time when we get to see the X-Men fight the brood, and that is scary. Bye. We took a brief jaunt home from space for three amazing issues here on Earth. Well, partially on Earth. But Jonah, before we return back to space, since there is no mansion to speak of, where can everybody find you? Not in limbo, hanging out at Belasco and facing future and past versions of myself. You could actually find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me hanging out here on amazing shows like Now and Again, where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend, Chris. The other feeds of this amazing show were Jonah, myself, Kyle, Kevo, Dylan, Mikey, and more all talk about comics, or where Kevo and I talk about movies over on HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less. Don't forget to check out my amazing webcomic, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com, or check me out on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay! Until we return to the X-Men, we'll see ya. See ya! <laughs>